Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? You sound kind of down. Oh, it's just October, and you know, it's like way warmer than it's supposed to be, so I guess I'm kind of down. Yeah, that's not good. I mean, it is October, and it's way colder than it's supposed to be where I am. <laughs> Ooh. So uh, that's interesting, and it, but it's also good because it actually rained this week, and it's a big deal in Los Angeles these days. Um, especially since there's a huge drought going on. Mm -hmm. So um, feeling pretty good about that. That's nice. That's like um, the cactus is just like like party time. Cactus party time. Yeah. Okay. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I think we're going to be seeing each other very, very soon. We're going to be seeing each other so soon. Oh, my goodness, listeners, especially you listeners out there in Montreal and the Montreal region. We, Nora and I, are going to be in Montreal this very week. Um, After you listen to this episode, because you listen right away when it comes out on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. after you listen to it in just a couple short days, um, you will be able to see us live in Montreal. That's right. That's right. And you know what? I get to see some of the sales information. And so I want to say to the two folks coming from Trois-Rivières, wow. Wow. Like, make sure you come and identify yourselves. <laughs> That's awesome. That is amazing. And we're both super looking forward to it. Make sure that you have any questions that you've got for us ready, because we'll be ready to, to try to take them on and have a really good discussion. And for everyone who can't make it, it is a live show that we will be taking some portion of and uh, putting on the pod. That's right. That's right. We're going to record it. I'm even going to lug all of my gear to be able to record this. So if you can't make it, don't worry. You're going you're gonna to enjoy the, the magic of the live show. And so if you want to get tickets, they're only $7 and change. You can get them at Le Point de Vente or the Point of Sale. Uh, just look it up. Uh, and it's at the Osgang Plaza. So Thursday night, we'll see you all there. It's going to be super, super fun. I'm so excited. Me too. Very excited. Um, Why don't we get this week started off, as we did the last couple weeks, with Christian Freeland Watch. (laughs) Okay. So shout out to Emma Jackson, who made sure that this week for Christian Freeland Watch, we caught that video that I think a lot of listeners probably also saw. Sandy, did you see this video of Christopher Freeland talking about democracy and dying for it? <laughs> I mean, yes, I have seen it now <laughs> that just before we got on the line today, you told me to to go take a look at it. Um, that is really quite something. For, so for those of you who haven't seen it, what forum is she actually at? What what is this that she's talking at? I don't know. It's just like the Brookings Institute or something behind her. Um, and so it's some sort of international gathering in in the states. I know that she was in the states because she was making other speeches the night before. She made this big grandiose speech about saving uh, liberal democracy, which is of course her fucking the only thing that she knows how to talk about. And so she's speaking to this uh, crowd, and someone asks her. I think it was actually like kind of probably intended to be a bit of a softball question because the way that he frames it, I mean, he could have been much more aggressive or frustrated with the way that everything that Freeland stands for is like dealing with 
development across the African continent. But he he very politely, you know, says, well, what happens to those countries in Africa that rely on aid, that aren't getting aid in the ways that they were because money is now going to Ukraine? And Russia is trying to get into getting like get into these countries through their funding. Like, is this something we should be concerned about? He asked. And he works for like a development bank. So obviously, like, you know, seeing this pretty much probably right close up. And Sandy, you caught you caught Christian's response to that question, right? I surely did. And then and just just before I give our listeners the the response to that, just in case you're not up on your, you know, uh, global political uh, machinations, like the way like this question is is important in a way um, that I hope that you all understand, because the West in general, wealthy nations have forced states in Africa to be reliant on aid. They are reliant on aid. And so pulling away that aid and leaving it open for Russia to um, to swoop in and say, oh, you need aid because you, you are now reliant on it because of structural adjustment programs and programs of the IMF and the World Bank and so on. We can come in and give you this aid for political support. So that's that. I mean, that's the background um, that uh, I think is all that's necessary to know, to understand why this is such an important question <laughs> to to give to someone like Christian Freeland. Christian Freeland, uh, her response, I mean, really makes it super clear why the liberals are trying to hide as much as <laughs> her as possible <laughs> as they prefer, prepare for her to take leadership. She says a few really weird, bizarre things. One, she starts off by being like, <laughs> I don't want to judge African states, like uh, far be it from me to be the judgmental type. Sort well, of actually, thing. she says that it's not her job, which I thought was a very interesting choice of words. Yeah, she says it's, it's not, not her, her job. job to judge the African states. But be that as it may, <laughs> in the very next breath, perhaps even the same breath, she says, um, you know, the people of Ukraine what they have done is decided to create democracy for themselves. They have taken it, taken it on for themselves, the agency for themselves, to create that democracy and to fight for it, to fight for the death. And that's what you need to do when you're building a democracy. It's very hard, even in a country like Canada, very, very hard to maintain a democracy, but it's a choice that you have to make. And the Ukrainian people have made that choice. And people in African states, you know, that is a choice that they can make. <laughs> Very non-paternalistic, not, no judgment uh, there at all. And then, then our dear finance minister, former foreign affairs, says, <laughs> um, without missing a beat, you know, we didn't give money over to Ukraine. Well, I don't know if she says we didn't specifically, but she says yeah, you, they're not getting support in that way. What they, they're making um, the choice by themselves. Uh, Ukraine is doing this on their own. And so if you want to um, create democracy or support uh, the, the you know, progress of your state, you've got to make that choice on your own. Um, which flies in the face of 
how much exactly is it? I'm like pulling up some of the numbers from um, from the, the website that uh, the Canadian government has set up so that you can take a look at exactly how much aid they are sending over to Ukraine. Um, and I think it's like 600 million at this mm. point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, plus military support, plus weapons. It's like, come on. Yeah, I, I, this this intervention, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because I've heard her speak before and she speaks with such um, a smug air of like racial superiority <laughs> that um, I was like, yeah, yeah, there there she is. But you said something that I think uh, is probably correct, that th- that she doesn't get the chance to speak too much, probably because they're very afraid that she will say things like this because she can't help herself. And... This is the first time that I was like, oh, you know what? She's not going to be prime minister. She's not. This is my new prediction. She's too much of a liability, and her ambitions are probably actually far greater than the mere country of Canada. Right? This is a woman whose like, most success of her career was outside of Canada. And I can see her really actually angling for one of like a, a bigger position. I don't know, like head of NATO or something like this. And... It was a good reminder that she's she's um, she's shitty to the most extreme uh, possible uh, expression of the word shitty. And I, I what I'm what I'm surprised by is like, like, do Canadians know that by and large or do they listen to what she says? And they're like, yes, this is very reasonable. Mm-hmm. You must die for your democracy as if like fucking anybody in Canada died for our democracy. I mean, lots of people died because of our democracy, but <laughs> exactly. as many people, as many people reminded me on, on Twitter, okay, fine. With the exception of Darcy McGee and maybe a couple people that have had heart attacks while waiting in line to vote, no one, no one's died in Canada to build our democracy. We've been involved in like helping to put down democratic movements in other parts of the world but what the fuck is she talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. <laughs> I was about to say, I really don't know. I wish I could tell you. It's very, very... Um, if you haven't seen it, feel free to watch it. Like, you're not going to, you know, learn anything um, really great or burst really a lot of brain cells, maybe one or two. But... Like, it is fascinating to watch her just kind of uh, trudge through this answer without, like, the realization that she's put her foot in her mouth. Like, there's no pause of, like, oh, fuck, I said the wrong thing. Or, oh, (laughs) fuck, I'm fully lying in a way that is so obvious. Yeah. It's just just full on, like, she's so comfortable with uh, the way that she's uh, talking about it. So... It's worth the, the watch there. I don't know if I agree with your prediction. I've seen some of these other predictions that she's going to, you know, get a get a role with the UN or NATO or something like that. I, I get why people are saying that, but I don't know. I still think that she's the pick for leader. I don't know if she'll beat Pierre Polyver, but I think that she's, <laughs> a, she's she if the liberals are um smart is not the word i'm looking for but it's the first one that's coming to mind if the, if the clever liberals are clever cleverer than they have been before i mean they should they should run yeah. her instead of justin trudeau because she's a better chance anyway 
that's that. Oh, yeah. No, she is. She is. But I think we're going to see, I think like we've seen Melanie Jolie be put more yep, that's true. on these international questions. And so I think, and, and, and she's also, I mean, not capable really uh, of, of <laughs> a prime ministerial position. Anybody that's been watching Melanie Jolie's political career over the last you know 15 years will, I think, probably find that funny. But it will be interesting to see because she does play better, I think, in English, which is also very interesting. But one of the things I want to mention before we get off of this, because we're not going to talk about uh, war in Ukraine uh, in this episode, I don't think. But, you know, in the aftermath of last week's show and then um, other experiences I've had online of people like just really, really, really coming at me for having like, how dare I have an anti-war position on this situation? Uh, I want to just mention that I heard from a lot of people who thanked us for and thanked me uh, like for talking publicly about the need to talk about anti-war and the need to talk about how flooding a fucking unstable, uh, corrupt democracy with guns and and, and tanks and and weapons is probably not going to fucking work out in the long run. I mean, you don't have to look very hard in the history of warfare to figure that one out, but um, everybody's got um, brain poisoning thanks to the full-blown fucking propaganda machine that's happening within the mainstream press. And so for the folks that, e- that messaged me or emailed me to say thank you for, like, trying to make space for an anti-war perspective on all of this, I mean, you're welcome. And and it really, it, it feels like it's getting worse. Like, it feels like it's going to be, like, it's the first time I've really felt like people are, they understand that this this can kill someone's credibility to, like, a fucking maximum extent and I feel like people are really trying to undermine my credibility when I talk about this stuff and it and it I mean I'm not personally scared by it but I can only imagine what it feels like if you don't have credibility to burn <laughs> like if you don't if you're not in a position where you can just speak your mind and 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 be piled on and it's like not a big deal and so for everyone out there who's like yeah this doesn't add up um it doesn't it doesn't add up and you know, whenever you're against, whenever you're against the side of the liberal establishment, the conservative establishment, the entire American government, uh, you know you're on the right side. <laughs> so keep, yeah. keep on, keep on, keeping on. Uh, yeah. Okay. So going next to the West Coast. Ah, um, uh, the best coast. I mean, they would say that. Yeah, I was, gonna, say <laughs> I was gonna say. I'm not sure about that. Not. Not that I have anything against. I, I'm just going to stop talking. So basically, um, there were some elections. <laughs> we love we love a lot of folks out there. A lot we of good people out there. You folks are great <laughs> in Vancouver. Yes, um, there. You know, there were some elections that happened on the West Coast in British Columbia. The municipal elections um, happened across the province. Um, municipal and local elections. And uh, we want to talk about some of the results in Vancouver in particular. Yes, yes. So uh, Kennedy Stewart, who folks might remember, I mean, if you're in Vancouver, you know, he was the mayor of the, of the city. Uh, if you're not in Vancouver, you might remember him as being a member of the NDP. He was an NDP uh, federal MP. Uh, he got trounced. He got massively fucking trounced and so did other um, progressive candidates and it's so bad that I'm seeing I'm seeing despair from people who I don't usually see this level of despair from who are quite afraid of what is coming with the new with the new mayor. Stewart was beaten by a relatively unknown candidate named Ken Sim 
And Sim's important because he had the backing of Chip Wilson, who's the founder of Lululemon, who if you don't know about Chip Wilson, the guy's fucking like Pete, like just a fucking piece of fucking work, uh, racist and um, into like cult stuff. You can look him up if you're curious, but he basically represents money in Vancouver. And, uh, and Sim also got the support of the police. And it was the first time that the police took a formal position on who they wanted to elect. And I want to shout out my friend Gabrielle Peters for spending a lot of uh, patient time explaining all this to me because um, I hate municipal politics at the best of times. And so um, I got to be honest, uh, Vancouver, I have been paying totally tons of attention to to what's been going on. But, you know, in the midst of an opioid crisis and in the midst of um, increasing acts of vandalism and, and crime and this this feeling that uh, Stuart was not there. I mean, missing an incredible amount of meetings uh, as as mayor. Um, one of the things that they did do was they froze the police budgets and they froze their budgets as part of freezing all budgets, like big fucking deal. The police made this as if they were like radical defund the police people and went to the province, which is an NDP government, and the province forced the city to uh, undo that decision. So it's just like that kind of thing um, is obviously going to play with your credibility in, in some serious ways. But when you have the police and you have business behind you and you're up against like a neo neoliberal social democratic mayor, I guess it's not too surprising that he that he lost, but like he really fucking lost. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to really talk about here is is the police's engagement, the police unions and the police themselves, their engagement in the election, not only uh, officially endorsing, but also having candidates uh, that they um, Mm. that are, you know, related to the police in some way run in the election. This as a response, as Nora said, to freezing budgets. So like, Um, you know, as someone who's doing a lot of or has done a lot of uh, policing research, even when there are cuts across the board or there's like spending freezes um, uh, in provinces and municipally, um, police generally don't get affected by those things. Their budget continues to go up. It's like one of the things that is uh, so ridiculous about the idea of people being like, no, you can't defund the police. How are they going to blah, blah, blah. Like everything, every single time any other social service, public service has been cut or paused or like frozen, the police continue to get money. So the fact that they were frozen um, and, and the police were also frozen, like, sure, that's... I guess a thing like that's something to note it is it's not but it's not a defunding of the police but it's very interesting that their response to that is like oh my god like we must for the first time you know endorse a candidate and do everything that we can to get these people out even though they still in the end got what they wanted I mean that's a lot of power that's showing a lot of power from the police this is um, going to be horrible for all sorts of reasons. The fact that the police were able to, um, you know, endorse and, sh- and, and sort of uh, really help along with this Lululemon guy, um, these players to get elected, what it means is that any sort of crackdown that happens subsequent to this election um, that, you know, includes a crackdown on, um, let's say, the downtown east side, crackdowns on people who are uh, drug users, people who are sex workers, 
the response of uh, putting more into the police to deal with um, housing crises rather than um, uh, alternative methods of of supporting people who who need support in whatever sorts of social partic- uh, uh, social or public issues might be happening at the time. This is a this is a mandate uh, for that sort of police crackdown. The other thing, though, is is it really a mandate? <laughs> because uh, fascinatingly, <laughs> the voter turnout in Vancouver is like atrocious. It's it's kind of unbelievable. I was looking at the numbers, like what in the world? This doesn't make any sense. A th- not even a third of voters came out to vote 31 percent 31 percent wow is what how is that even legal stunned like what is that a fucking student union election (laughs) right you know and we and we 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 fought hard to up those numbers but um that's hard students are really hard to get to the polls but i mean citizens uh taxpayers uh what the like not even a third that seems like it should be criminal actually yeah, I uh, it's pretty it's pretty fucking stunning. So, OK, so, yes, there's a mandate for, uh, you know, like a really pro police way of doing things. But it's also like a mandate from who and like if most people are checking out, what does that really mean about the legitimacy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the city council and um, and just like the the impact that the municipal politics generally have on uh, people's Uh, you know, perceived how people perceive whether or not municipal politics have a role to play in their lives. And if, if the, 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 the city can vote not to increase the police budget and then the province just turns it around anyway, well, maybe those people are right. I also want to point out that like a Saturday voting day seems really weird. I mean, our municipal elections have Sunday voting days and our turnout is far lower than uh, the other general elections. I don't understand what the obsession is to have a single voting day like that alone is a huge barrier for people to just get to the polls because, oh, forgot. Oh, came and went, you know, give people a couple of fucking days. I mean, advanced polls don't count because people need those, too. But I don't know if that would have changed a whole lot in this situation because it, it like it's very clear that there's there's a feeling like a progressive tendency to hope that good arguments will carry the day. To hope that uh, having a track record, regardless of what that track record is, and having um, checking all the boxes on the important issues is enough. And and it seems like people were sideswiped here by the power of money and of policing in politics. And maybe I'm misreading the situation. And I know that some folks have said to me, you know, like there's also just been an exodus of progressive people from the city because of the costs. Um, I suspect, though, that the most marginalized are not necessarily leaving the city and are just going to be living uh, in this hellscape uh, for, you know, another four years at least. But like, let's say, okay, fine. So there's maybe fewer people that might be natural allies to social Democrats. I, I mean, that's probably the case for sure. It's an expensive city. People leave. But like there's a whole part of organizing that is just so absent in in this whole conversation and that and, and instead it's like organizing just just completely is wrapped up in getting someone elected. 
And this is a tendency that you see NDPs, like very specifically the NDP in British Columbia, as like for years and years and years have been the biggest kind of like promoter of organizing towards winning elections. And it's like the same people, right? It's the same kind of mentality when when you move to the federal government. But it's it's like, you know, I watch these results and I'm like, Polly Ever is going to have a fucking easy time winning if we're not organizing to yeah. actually confront power and to actually confront police power and this kind of thing, right? Because it's like, what do you expect? Like when you've got all the money and you've got all the fucking security forces behind a candidate, you can't just be rational and even handed and try to come up with, you know, hard solutions that will be good for everybody. No, it takes like actual political organizing and that organizing cannot be oriented towards an election. That's where social movements are really, really important. If you don't have any social movements, well, and then, then you're just like hoping that you can get a progressive candidate to coast into winning which isn't how it works. And so I'm like very concerned by this. And hoping that that progressive candidate is is really well-versed on all the issues. Like they got to be, like if you're, if you're not depending on social movements and instead are depending on people, you have to make sure that that person is like the most educated person around too. Like that's part of the reason why it doesn't make any sense. Like you can't assume that one person is going to have all of the issues and exactly all of the the different nuances of how those issues uh, uh, come down um, is going to be like the person who's going to save the day that that doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense like what kind of uh, that's a like a weird faith in representational politics that has never borne out to be true (laughs) that that certainly won't be borne out to be true in Vancouver or anywhere else in Canada. Yeah, yeah. And then... Oh, Sorry to interrupt you. No, there. it's it was all good. And and then, like, the, the other thing, too, is it's like, Kennedy had a split council. It was a minority council. But that is then where you need to organize even harder. Even harder. And, you know, I'm watching Vancouver. And, uh, of course, Vancouver also has a very, I think, uh, maybe folks don't think it's that weird, but I think that they have this very weird system of an at-large councillor system. And so everybody votes for their councillor across the city. There's not a ward-based um, election process. I don't know what the history of that is. So if folks want to get in touch with us about that, we'd be happy to share that to, to the listeners because I think it's very fascinating, especially considering how local municipal politics are that like, of course, when you start to have everyone elected by everybody, when you have an at-large system of councillors, like it's going to be really hard to get progressive people in there. Like the progressive people have to fight, you know, tooth and nail to get in there. But you know, I don't think, I know that people were calling for voter reform under Kennedy's term if he's got a split council, maybe that was going to be impossible. But when you have a split council, it's like you got your foot in the door. You, you don't you don't have the building. You've got your foot in the door. And the only way that you're going to get your foot and brought rest of the body into the building and then open the door for all of your comrades to come into the building as well is if you are organizing. And um, I mean, I feel like we're saying this over and over and over, but it, it just seems very, very obvious. And I don't like, I don't want to put down the work that people did. I know people worked their hearts out for the, for the election, but we're not organizing is not it, you cannot just organize to win elections like the, the, the limit of that logic could not be more clear. And if we're not specifically organizing in neighborhood based organizing or issues based organizing or whatever, whatever justice based organizing you're interested in, you, you can't influence politics because you don't have you're not building people power. You know, look at like the like drug user activism is like the most 
exciting thing that happens in Vancouver, and partly it's because it's life and death and people have no choice but to fight for life. But it's that kind of like, you know, everything from doing service provision to activism to building community to bringing people together to 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 to, to, to taking on politicians and taking on public health and, and finding solutions that are completely like outside of the bounds of what might be acceptable at one given moment and then pushing the bounds away and creating new spaces where other things are possible. That's our only fucking hope. And so, you know, Vancouver has happened. I know Victoria went progressive. I know there's other progressive people that got elected. There was a, a, one of the most bigoted candidates got replaced by the first openly trans candidate in a, in, an, in a school board race, which is like really great. So people shouldn't take that this is all bad news happening in the province. But, you know, M- Ontario is about to walk into their municipal elections in a couple of weeks now. And the the local grassroots organizing i mean there's some of it's happening in some parts of the of the province hamilton ottawa <laughs> but it's got to happen outside of elections it can't just be election driven because with 31% fucking voter turnout you, you, we're just going to lose like we're just losing more and more people because it's boring and people are checking out for all of the reasons that we already talk about all the time yeah, and I just want um, to to correct. So the 31% voter turnout is for Metro Vancouver, just so you all know. So that's including areas of Vancouver like Richmond, Port Coquitlam, um, Surrey, and so on. Um, the Vancouver proper a turnout was, I mean, not much better. It was 36.6%. But I uh, just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, it's still pretty bad. I mean, gosh, uh, some of these numbers, Richmond is like 25%. It's pretty bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. And it do, it, it really does point to um, a really weak uh, organizing um, uh, situation that's happening right now. And uh, uh, I agree with everything that you said. And I don't know if there's anything more to be said on this topic. Well, that's a good moment to then maybe pivot to uh, Canada's international generosity. I mean, <laughs> we started the show talking about Christopher Freeland um, and how uh, how Canada believes that Africans have to do it for themselves. And then at the same time, uh, I'm not sure if you saw this, Sandy, but we just sent a plane full of like tanks and supplies to Haiti. <laughs> yeah, okay, democracy <laughs> in Africa, like y'all need to figure out how to do that by yourselves, okay? But Haiti, we will continue to support creating democracy in Haiti as we have done several several times over the last ever since Haiti got free. Um Canada, France, uh, the United States have uh, intervened uh, militarily in in Haiti's affairs, always, always to the detriment of uh, Haiti and the people of Haiti. And it has um, resulted in, over the years, like this, you know, as Black people tend to speak about it, this punishment for being the first Black republic, for being a uh, republic that, uh, freed itself um, from the throes of enslavement and created its own state. Um, there have been, there's been p- deep, deep consequences for Haiti doing that. 
that have been levied on it from its uh, previous colonial exploiters and the the continued exploitation from countries like ours. Yeah. So let's talk about what's going on in Haiti. Um, for a long time now, there's been a lot of civil unrest over gasoline shortages and gas prices. And the, there have been protests over fuel prices for many years now in Haiti. But in September, uh, the government, uh, the prime minister, Ariel Henry, announced that the government could no longer afford to subsidize fuel. And so the fuel shortages are uh, are sparking lots and lots and lots of protests against the government. Um, and at the same time, there's this cholera epidemic again uh, that is on the rise because of conditions not being um, because of, of unsanitary conditions in places like prisons. And um, I mean, the last time there's a big cholera flare, it, it was directly connected to the work that international um, agents, uh, UN agents were, were doing there. I, I, we haven't seen that news come out yet. But it's like, Sandy, have you been, have you been watching this? Yeah, I mean, all of this is related to, again, um, the machinations of like the the exploiting states. So um, the part of the reason why this is happening is because the United States imposed sanctions on Venezuela, as you might remember. And those sanctions made it really difficult for Venezuela to um, give a p- specific fuel prices to Haiti through a Caribbean oil program. And so what that meant was that the fuel prices like skyrocketed. So all of this is like created from the West. And so I'm not really sure what sort of engagement from Canada and the U.S. who are also sending over quote unquote aid in the form of uh, guns and tankers uh, to Haiti. I think what's important to note as well about um, the this sort of like guns and tankers and so on um, is that you'll you might see some um, some news that says that the the Haitian government is in support support of this and this is what the like Haiti wants um, and uh, that you know it, when Justin Trudeau made the announcement on Twitter he specifically wrote. Um, Haiti has paid for these armored vehicles, which is also a weird, a weird details. Like we are sending over armored vehicles to Haiti, which they it's like in brackets, I think, too. It's like which they have paid for um, wanting to make sure, I suppose, that um, they're not seen to be, you know, people need to create democracy themselves. Nora, I don't know if you've heard. Um, but it, it's very <laughs> important <laughs> that uh, Canada not be seen as, you know, um, being paternalistic here. Um, but I think it's also important to note that this is a government that many uh, are criticizing as um, being once again propped up by the West. There was a strange turnover of the government um, in summer 2021, and the details of that whole um, uh you know, there was an assassination and switch of government is are kind of bizarre and uh, related to, to some sort of something going on in Florida. Um, I encourage you to take a look at, at, at that story as well. It's 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 really ca- kind of interesting to try to parse through. But the resulting uh, government uh, ends up, you know, surprise, surprise, being one that um, many are um 
uh, are probably quite right in critiquing as being propped up by the West once to, once again. Mm-hmm. Well, and also like like just to go back to the the origins of this, and you touched on this, but like the idea that you you know people have to do it for themselves, do democracy for themselves. Like it cannot be overstated that Haiti did it for themselves. <laughs> they threw off the colonial shackles before any other nation was able to do so in 1804. And then France slapped on incredible reparations that Haiti was expected to pay. And Western nations have not left them alone since. And so, you know, I think of, of friends I have uh who are not just Haitian, but who are like been in Canada not very long, who who go back to Haiti quite a lot. And one said to me once, he's like, I just don't understand why Canada, United States and France can't leave Haiti alone. Like I just, it just doesn't make any sense, like why they are so invested in fucking things up for us. And I just like don't think like Canadians have a really good grasp on how involved we have been. I mean, our involvement is long and deep and goes back decades and decades. And, you know, that on, on one end, we have this involvement that's that's destabilizing the country. We're giving tanks to an unelected prime minister. And uh, for what? To use against his own people. And he's using against his own people because people are, are organizing uh, to survive. I mean, things are really, really dire. And then you've got massive malnutrition. You've got massive problems with other health. And I already mentioned the cholera. And we're just like looking, sitting back and watching this. And then, and then a you know, big story comes up on human trafficking. And it's like, oh, uh, we're turning away all these Haitians trying to come into Canada. And it's just like, this is so gross. This like, let's not compare this to Ukraine, because if we compare it to Ukraine, then you just fucking fall into dust or turn into a pillar of salt or something like it's just you just it's, it's, it's insupportable to like look at how different these situations are and how different they are in the way that we're intervening in them. Um, and it's like it's 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 so exactly like the, the, the perfect example of how fucked Canada is on the international s- stage and we don't talk about it here. We we do everything we can to not talk about it here. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the thing that is, you know, I'm I was taking a look at the way that the Canadian media is talking about um, this uh, distribution of military uh, weapons and shit to to Haiti, and the way that they're talking about it is saying that you know they're helping. The that the Canadian media is talking about it is that the Canadian government is helping the Haitian government take control over um, gangs who have um, taken over the ports um, and stopped, uh, you know, important trade routes like that's that is how the Canadian media is talking about it. But, you know, if you if you only listen to that part of the story, you miss so much that's going on. Everything that we've just talked about. These are people who are fighting literally for their survival. Like the 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 fact that people cannot afford fuel and are you know their livelihoods are being threatened and they are dying. People have taken up um, the cause by doing what many of us have done. You know, locally. You know, stopping traffic, whether that's on a roadway, uh, trains, or, you know, trying to interrupt the economy in some way in order to say we cannot continue like this. 
we are dying. And that is how it should be looked at. And so for Canada to then say, all right, we will send you more weaponry that can be used to kill people. Like, how does that solve the problem? That doesn't solve anything. All it does is make sure that average people are going to continue to be crushed. Uh, to what end? To, to, to what end? Where does that leave people? Does it leave them safer? Does it leave them less hungry? Does it leave them able to, um, uh, to, to live and to thrive? No, it doesn't. And so Canada should get the fuck out, should stay the fuck out of these affairs. Like, stop fucking meddling in Haiti. And especially if um, everything that you do is just going to lead to more Haitians dying. And again, like this is the country that when Haitians were crossing the border, you know, en masse after uh, President Trump uh, ended uh, special protections for Haitian asylum seekers after the earthquake, Canada, you know, en masse detained uh, Haitians. This is the, the very same country, like the... The animosity, the aggression towards Haitian people is like it's extremely consistent and absolutely dehumanizing and really fucking disgusting. And Canada should be playing absolutely no fucking role in what's happening right now in Haiti, uh, even though, you know, uh, from the beginning we do because, um, you know, all of this has was started as a result of international issues uh, geopolitical issues which we're fully fucking involved in and it's also like like don't aren't we an oil producing nation <laughs> like if we were being really generous like couldn't we just give fuel to them like it, it it's so it's so frustrating and this is i think why like i feel like like we're an upside down land because we have so many we've we've been saturated for the last nine months about our virtuousness, our democracy, fighting for liberal democracy, doing the right thing against fascism in Ukraine. And it's like you look anywhere else. I mean, we can also interrogate what's going on in Ukraine, as we have done. But you look anywhere else, and it's like, that is not true. We know that's not true. That's not how Canada operates. Canada is not the benevolent fucking nation that we are taught that it is, that we believe that it is, that we are told that it is by media and by politicians. And... You know, p partly there's also obviously a big divide. There's a lot more attention to what happens in Haiti and French Canada than there is in English Canada for language reasons. But the incapacity of journalists to take this seriously, to talk about this seriously, to criticize our government is unbelievable. It's, it's truly it's on display at the highest fucking level when we're talking about Haiti. And it's for that reason that like I just, you know, nothing you can't trust anything that the liberals are saying or that the conservatives would say or that the NDP would say because it is all so consistently shit, as you said. It's all so deeply consistent and so deeply wrapped up with Western supremacy, Western hegemony, white supremacy, uh, capitalism, uh, control, like control of our borders. We go through the pandemic and, and, and all of these Haitian workers are our guardian angels, as they're called by our government. And they're fucking still deported or we're still fighting deportations from some of these these folks being sent to back to Haiti, <laughs> like where things are not good, where it's like very clear that they could very easily call like call themselves or call for a refugee status or call for asylum when they come to Canada. And so like, dear listeners, 
pay attention to how our governments talk about Haiti. Think critically about, as we said, tanks. Tanks. Really? This is a situation that calls for tanks to be sent to an unelected government? What are they doing with those tanks? And why is that the first thing that we're thinking of sending? Like, just complete fucking bullshit. And it's hard to not just, like, curl up into a ball when you're thinking about all of this. Um, I, I don't know that we should end on that note. <laughs> um, no, I don't want to end on that. Though I deeply agree <laughs> with it. Um, I, I think uh, the note to end on is to say that organizing is important. As we've um, as we've been saying throughout this episode, it's also really important to organize across borders. Uh, do organizing that engages the issues that you're working on locally with the issues that are uh, impacting people across the border. Because very likely, if something is impacting your life, um, uh, whether it has to do with the economy or work or uh, you know anti-war, it is very likely impacting someone else. Um, around the world in the way that uh, Canada is engaging in it. So think about how you can tie your your um, your organizing to organizing overseas and making those linkages. And, uh, you know, make your own media if you're into that, like we do uh, and we'll be doing in Montreal this week. Oh, yeah. 